What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's summer 1976 in the industrial town of Duisburg, West Germany. Joachim Kroll is standing by his attic window, carefully scanning the playground below. He fixes his eyes upon a neighborhood girl, four-year-old Marion Ketter. A tingling feeling comes over him. He's attracted to the girl and decides to kidnap her at the next opportunity. On July 3rd, Kroll lures the girl back to his home. There, he sexually abuses her and kills her. Days later, a team of detectives search for the missing girl. One of them is young Bird Jaegers. When a four-year-old goes missing, the alarm bells go off everywhere. Of course, you use a lot of personnel to try and find this girl. As police go door to door questioning residents, a neighbor approaches them, visibly shaken. He explains that the waste pipe in his apartment building is blocked up. When he asked Kroll, his upstairs neighbor, whether he knew the cause of the clogged pipe, Kroll gave a chilling response. Guts. The police confront Kroll immediately. And when we got there, other colleagues were already on the scene. And we then went inside the flat and experienced something terrible. It's a scene of unspeakable horror. On the stove lay a human hand, simmering in a pot of water with carrots and potatoes. And inside the refrigerator? There was this girl, completely dismembered. Upper arm, forearm, placed on corresponding shelves, so that he only had to take something out and add it to the pan. That was unfathomable for us. In the plumbing, authorities discover Kroll had not lied. There are internal organs clogging the pipes, including the lungs of a small child. Well, I was shocked, because I had a son who was not that much older. I had not been in the homicide division long, only for two years. I have seen many things, but this was something completely new to me, that a human being was able to do such a thing. For two decades, Joachim Kroll targeted women across West Germany, evading the authorities for years. Between the mid-1950s and the late 1970s, Joachim Kroll confessed to killing 14 people. The youngest was Marion Ketter. In my view, Kroll is among the most depraved serial killers we've seen in Europe in the 20th century. The fact that he got away with this for so long, I think we should really ask ourselves a lot of questions. How does somebody like this go under the radar for that long? And while Kroll killed in stealth, innocent people were accused of his crimes. Everyone kept saying he was the alleged child murderer, and that drove my father to his death. This is What Makes a Killer a 12-part series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious serial killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. 
We'll speak with family members, survivors, and experts to uncover how they became killers. In this episode, we'll discuss Joachim Kroll, the man-eater of Duisburg. Born in 1933, Joachim Kroll was the sixth of nine children. The Kroll family lived in Upper Silesia in the far east of Germany until they were driven out by the Second World War. Finances were always tight for the family of 11. They squeezed into two small rooms. Joachim was a quiet, frail boy with a slow demeanor. He became an easy target for ridicule by his classmates. An aptitude test would later reveal that he had an IQ of 76, a score well below average and considered intellectually impaired. Kroll never finished school. Connecting with others always proved difficult for Kroll. He was unable to forge bonds with his own siblings. The only relationship that he was able to maintain was with his mother, whom he looked up to. His father, a minor and prisoner of war, would often beat him. Again, here's Detective Bird Jaegers. You have to bear in mind that Akim had always been teased and bullied. Even in his own family, he was always the loser. When one of them did something, his siblings would always say, Akim did it, so he would be beaten again. Neither accepted by his family nor his peers, Kroll didn't seem to belong anywhere. He was born into the world a pariah. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley said that his father recognized this and tried to change that. And then later on, he was drafted into the Hitler Youth. You know, perhaps his father thought this was a way of sorting him out and making him, you know, a real man. But that didn't really work out either um, because he didn't fit in with that particular culture. The 1930s was a turbulent time for Germany, the emergence of the Nazi party leading into the beginning of the Second World War. Criminologist Stephen Harbort described in disturbing detail the graphic warfare Kroll and his family were exposed to during this time. When the Red Army came, all the Germans were driven out. And for the Kroll family, it was an odyssey because they went from place to place to find another home somewhere. Kroll had to watch women being raped, people being killed, how small boys played with explosives and blew themselves up in the process. So, as a young man, Joachim Kroll had already been badly traumatized. He was 12 years old when the war ended in 1945. As a teenager, Kroll went to work on a farm where he continued to face adversity. He would pursue his female co-workers, but his aggressive advances would always result in hostile rejections. Often, his employer would beat him for his incompetence. It was during his time on the farm that Kroll began to develop a morbid fascination with animal slaughter. When he saw a pig being slaughtered for the first time, it had a lasting effect on him. He started sweating, his pulse was racing. It was basically a very positive and almost ecstatic experience that he didn't expect to feel. He was completely overwhelmed by these sensations that were totally unknown to him. 
Kroll's tolerance of the brutality at the slaughterhouse soon evolved into a fetishization of violence. Kroll began to act on his twisted fantasies by engaging in violent and sexual acts with animals. Now here's somebody who hasn't had a lot of power, who hasn't had a lot of control over the things that have been happening in his life. But when he's involved in the slaughtering of animals, he's fully in control in this situation. And this is something that he quite enjoys. It's the first time, I think, in his life that he's got control over what's going on. Dr. Yardley also described another disturbing instance when Kroll was living in a hostel for single men. He took a cat into his room, struck it with a hammer, and skinned it to see what its insides looked like. And that really does show this kind of childlike curiosity that he's got and the complete lack of boundaries around how to behave appropriately. Kroll's violence towards animals soon transferred to more human-like objects. Because Kroll didn't manage to get access to women, he procured himself several rubber dolls instead which he draped with clothing, but then also hanged them with a rope and imagined that the women would then die. He got a particular kick out of that. So he started off life as an outsider, not really got many decent social relationships. He's quite isolated. And he's somebody who is becoming increasingly introverted, and that's always a dangerous thing. From there, Kroll's disturbing behavior only began to escalate. It was only a matter of time before his deviant compulsions would lead him to kill. In February 1955, 21-year-old Joachim Kroll committed his first murder just three weeks after the death of his mother. Joachim Kroll's murderous career started when the only person he could relate to, his mother, died. His mother was, above all, the most important person in Kroll's life, in contrast with his father, who beat him regularly. She was the only positive figure in his life. He looked up to her and didn't have to be afraid. So when this pillar broke, there was no halt to his sexual pathological development. Kroll's sexual appetite was insatiable. With no successful encounters with women, Kroll realized that the only way he could have sex with a woman was by force. In the town of Ludinghausen, an hour's drive northeast of Duisburg, Kroll saw an attractive blonde dressed all in green, 19-year-old Ermgard Stiel, he approached the young woman and attempted to kiss her. Horrified, the woman spurned him. Kroll reacted violently, stabbing her four times in the neck. He kind of shuffles her off into the woods where he sexually assaults her and he kills her and then he, he mutilates her, her body. When we put his first murder in context, the only way that he's felt powerful and that he's felt in control is when he's been killing animals on the farm. So when he, he kills his first victim, this is another exercise of power. It's another exercise of control. But what's particularly important about this one is that he's crossed a line. He's killed a human being. He's killed an individual. Five days later, Stiel's body was found in a snow-dusted barn beside the road. 
Her stomach had been slashed open. Large quantities of sperm were found in and around her vagina, leading police to suspect it was the act of several people. An autopsy found no bruising or signs of resistance, an indication that the victim was unconscious at the time of the rape. This savage attack marked the beginning of Kroll's spate of murders. We'll be right back after this message. Around 1960, Kroll moved to Duisburg, a suburb of Lahr in northwest Germany. There, he found work as a toilet attendant. True crime author Jeffrey Wansel speaks to Kroll's ability to disguise his diabolical nature. He presented to the world as friendly, plausible, agreeable to his neighbors in Duisburg. The local children would visit him, although I think sometimes their parents must have been a little suspicious. He was known as Uncle Joachim. Uncle Joachim delighted the neighborhood children by giving them candy and small gifts. Behind this facade of Uncle Joachim and, oh, I like to look after you girls and I'm boys and they come around to see me and I give them sweets, was this man who was very, very angry, who wanted to make society well aware that they were living by a thread and he could cut it at any moment that he chose. Kroll continued killing. He began to refine his modus operandi. He would follow women and girls home for days to study their schedules and plan his attack. Once alone, he'd surprise and strangle his victims. He'd have intercourse with the lifeless body, often masturbating over it once more. Afterwards, he'd mutilate the body, cutting off pieces of flesh, typically from tender regions like from their buttocks and thighs, to be eaten later. And it is about power and it's about control again. It's about completely possessing your victim. So not only have you taken away their life, you're now mutilating their body and consuming it. His nickname at one point was the Ruhr Cannibal or the Ruhr Hunter because he regularly boasted in the wake of his capture that he uh, ate the victims. He said it was the only meat he could eat. Kroll would later admit to authorities that he was saving money on grocery bills. The discovery of Marion Ketter's dismembered body in the kitchen of Joachim Kroll in 1976 shook the nation. For years, Kroll's killing spanned such a wide area that police hadn't linked the murders to one person, but striking in his own neighborhood had ultimately led to his capture. His crime scenes got closer and closer, and therefore it was the dumbest thing he could really do, was take a girl from the direct neighborhood. But as I said, his feeling was greater. After his arrest, Kroll was taken in by the Duisburg Police Department for questioning. Detective Yeagers remembers Kroll as slender, but incredibly strong and shy. Detectives were desperate to know how many victims there had been and Kroll's motives, but getting answers wouldn't be so easy. Kroll wouldn't talk. To get him to open up, Detective Yeagers tried to form a rapport with him. He asked him about his hobbies and interests, 
In a 2013 interview with the German newspaper Der Westen, Jaeger said, Despite his gruesome acts, I have always considered and treated him as a human being and not as a monster. I said to our boss I would like to talk to Achim alone. So the two of us sat down in the interview room and I tried, with absolute mundane and trivial subjects, to get through to him. To get through to this man now was, of course, not easy. I then tried with something we found out through interviews with his neighbours, that he would often work on the moped that he owned, that he would fix it and adjust it, that he also repaired his own television. And so I tried to go down this route and all of a sudden I noticed that he realised someone's listening to me when I talk about myself and is actually asking questions. And that was the moment when trust was gradually built up, where I was fortunate enough to kindle a spark of trust and so he also discussed other things with me. Detectives continued the ruse by offering to serve Kroll his favorite foods. The German press went wild, criticizing Jaegers for his humane treatment of the man-eater of Duisburg, a moniker they assigned to Kroll. One headline published read, Now Joachim Kroll is being given cake or potato fritters so that he will confess to the next murder. For Jaegers, this was outrageous. It was all a tactic to gain Kroll's trust. But some, like Stephen Hobart, admired his strategy. My colleague Bernd Jaegers did it all the right way. He's the one who broke the ice. Because without his special relationship with Kroll, all these murder confessions would probably never have been possible. So therefore, he deserves the very highest respect. He gave Kroll the feeling, I don't see you as a beast or man-eater, but just as a human being, and that's exactly how I'll treat you. Let yourself go, do that. And Kroll did that. And then day after day, he confessed to new murders. Eventually, Kroll warmed up to investigators. He admitted to killing 14 people, perhaps more. He was so prolific over the two decades that he lost count of the total number of victims. Hearing this, it began to dawn on detectives that some of their old, unsolved cases could probably be traced back to Kroll. To collect further evidence, they decided to revisit former crime scenes with Kroll. He agreed to accompany investigators and share the grisly details of each of his attacks. Officers drove Kroll to a series of cold case locations throughout the Wurgabeet region. Kroll demonstrated how he killed his victims in a series of unsettling reconstruction pictures. Jaegers and his team hoped that the reenactment of the murders may help them identify his unknown victims. We as interrogators had no files, nothing at all. We drove behind them, they stopped somewhere, then Akim got out and we asked, Akim, have you been here before? And if he recognized something, then he said, yes, I have been here before. He then looked at it all and went with us into the forest, depending on what crime scene it was. He then could describe how it had looked at that time. That was incredible, he had a photographic memory. One of the places Kroll took the investigative team was Essen, a town half an hour from Duisburg. There, Kroll went into detail about how he killed 61-year-old Maria Hetkin outside of her house in 1969. 
He walked around the lake all day. It was nice weather and had this feeling. It slowly turned to dusk and he wanted to go home, but then he saw the old lady whom he immediately addressed and said, do you want to have sex with me? She did not want to, of course. He snatched her and pulled her into a wooded area, and then he killed her there. The investigators compiled over 100 photographs of the recreated scenes. In one photo, a male detective lays on his back on a green tarp in the woods. His eyes are closed. Kroll is in a brown pantsuit kneeling over him, using his left arm to prop himself up. He stares blankly into the camera. The information was gathered from these trips with Kroll over the course of three months. Using this, police were able to piece together Kroll's probable inventory of 14 murders, ages ranging from 4 to 61. Following these new developments, detectives realized that Kroll had confessed to murders that had apparently been solved, and that innocent men who were wrongly accused were now in prison and some had even taken their own lives. In 1970, six years before his arrest, Kroll had strangled and raped 13-year-old Uteran in the town of Breitscheid. But in a time before DNA evidence existed, the police focused their investigation on Uta's boyfriend. They assumed it was a crime of passion. For the police, and also for the prosecutor, the matter was resolved. And because of that, it was not on the list. And then Akim went with us into the forest and explained what he had done. This was the first story where we then said, hey, we have somebody here who is in the know. We're not here with somebody who is not quite so clever. He wants to show us what he's done. And now we have a crime for which someone else has almost been sentenced, and he has another 20 to 30 people that he might have killed. A blood group classification expert later confirmed that Yuda's boyfriend could not have been the perpetrator. He was acquitted. Others were not so lucky. In 1959, a 23-year-old man walked into the police station and falsely confessed to the murder of 16-year-old Manuela Knott, the man was arrested on the spot and sentenced to eight years in prison. After some time, this man went to the police and told them that he killed this girl. He really went to prison for the crime, but then said during his trial, it wasn't me. I only said that because I had financial problems, family problems. I was on the street. I needed somewhere to go and confess to this crime. It was, of course, no longer treated as an unsolved case by the police. The case had been closed. It had come to a trial and he had been convicted. After serving six years of his sentence, he was released in 1965. In April 1962, in a town north of Duisburg, a 13-year-old girl was found strangled with her scarf, raped, and with flesh and body parts missing. Police suspected and arrested a local sex offender. His wife divorced him. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison with psychiatric treatment. With no substantial evidence against him, 
the man was released after serving six years, but his neighbors were still convinced that he was the killer. Ultimately, the man committed suicide 14 years prior to Kroll's confession of the murder of the 13-year-old girl. Walter Quicker, a farmer from Walsham, a suburb of Duisburg, was also falsely accused for a murder Kroll committed. Quicker lived less than a mile from where 11-year-old Monica Toffel was sexually assaulted and strangled in June 1962. Stephen Harbord recounted the details. The young girl happened to be out and about that day and bumped into Joachim Kroll, who was out looking for a new victim to kill and rape. Without the slightest hesitation, he kept turning around to check if anyone could see him, approached the girl, dragged her into a field, strangled her, and then sexually assaulted her. Not long after the murder of Monica Toffel, the police arrested Quicker. His daughter, Marlies, was just six years old at the time. My father was suspected of raping and murdering an 11-year-old girl 150 meters from his family home. People who lived in the area, and also from among his acquaintances, made claims, expressed suspicions which the police reacted to. And I think it was five days after the child's body was found, they arrested him at his workplace. No one could have seen him, because on the day of the disappearance, he was at work. So in that sense, he also had a kind of alibi. He was accused, and I know that some people who were very close to me made negative comments about my father. Quicker was only held in police custody for a few days before being released without charge. But people in the area continued to believe that he was the killer. So after he was released, people avoided him and people called out behind him, murderer and stuff like that. It was the case that people really avoided him in the area. Six months after his arrest, the false accusations became too much for Quicker to bear. On the evening of the 10th of December, he left the house and that was the last time he was seen. On the 15th of December 1962, he was found hanging from a tree by some children. I was nine years old when I really grasped what had happened, and it appalled me. It touched me inside, and I often stood and looked at the spot where the girl was murdered. When Kroll confessed to the murder of Monica Toffel in 1976, it came as a huge relief to Marley's. Yet, in a way, Walter Quicker had become another victim of Joachim Kroll. My grandmother came out with the remark, so it wasn't him after all. This remark affected me very deeply, and I didn't ever discuss it with anyone else because I had to process the fact that the pressure of being the daughter of a suspected murderer had disappeared. My father had been rehabilitated. I don't know what other people said about that afterwards. I only know what I heard and what I felt myself, and that's the only thing that counted for me. In total, Two men were falsely accused or imprisoned, 
and three men committed suicide because of Kroll's murders. After his arrest in July 1976 for kidnapping and killing four-year-old Marion Ketter, detectives thought that Kroll seemed almost relieved to be captured. Jaegers recalls, He wanted this sensation gone, which had always led him to commit these crimes. So he really felt the need, and he thought that when he told his story, that it would go away somehow. In terms of what Kroll expressed about his punishment, it is quite childlike and quite immature in a way, because he thought that he would just go to hospital and his funny feelings would be cured and then he'd be able to go home. So this implies quite a, a kind of simplistic interpretation of his own problems. Kroll convinced himself that if he confessed to the murders, he'd be given a cure for his homicidal urges and be able to return to society reformed. But these murders couldn't simply vanish. Chrome would have to serve justice for his unspeakable crimes. Joachim Kroll, a ruthless German serial killer, escaped detection for two decades. And when he was eventually captured, he showed no remorse for the suffering he had caused. In my view, Kroll is among the most depraved serial killers we've seen in Europe in the 20th century. Kroll tended to minimize his behavior, and as criminologists, we call this techniques of neutralization. So rather than describing them as the horrendous things they are, he described them as his funny feelings, you know, something that was a bit of a, a quirk, uh, something that was a bit odd. So he's minimizing what he's doing by describing it in that way. He was not capable of feeling any sort of empathy towards anybody, especially his victims. They were simply objects to him that he wanted to manipulate and kill. And then he was content. Kroll's hearing began on October 4th, 1979, more than three years after his arrest, at the Grand Criminal Court in Duisburg. In one photo from the trial, Kroll is sitting at the dock between two men, wearing a dark turtleneck and brown sport coat. Below his balding crown, his eyes gaze downward, expressionless, behind his square-rimmed glasses. The trial lasted two and a half years. As the details of Kroll's disturbing sexual deviance were revealed, the case caught the public's imagination in a way few others have. The, in some cases, excessive media coverage obviously contributed to Kroll becoming a case of the century. But on the other hand, from a criminologist's perspective, one has to say that there hasn't been a comparable case in Germany, at least since the Second World War, where so many people have been killed over such a long period. The fact that he got away with this for so long, I think we should really ask ourselves a lot of questions. How does somebody like this go under the radar for that long? The trial came to an end in April 1982. Jaegers remembers that Kroll confessed to killing at least 14 people, but there could have been as many as 20 or 30 others. To this day, Jaegers is convinced there are more. Over the course of the trial, Kroll ended up revoking some of his confessions. Without sufficient forensic evidence to convict Kroll for all of his supposed crimes, the presiding judge, Paul George Skimmon, charged Kroll for eight counts of murder, one count of attempted murder, 
and sentenced him to life in prison. In response to the verdict, Yeager said, I would have thought it a pity if Kroll had landed in psychiatry. Dr. Yardley and Stephen Harbert share their thoughts on the case. What's interesting for me is what made him into this person that did these evil things? He didn't really have very much in the way of monitoring of his behaviour or any breaks on his behaviour. So I think when you have a situation like that, you can have somebody who turns into someone capable of real evil. In my view, Kroll wasn't mad or bad, but was a human being who had failed in social terms, sexually, and in his work life, and who on this basis committed the most terrible crimes. In my opinion, Joachim Kroll would not have become a serial killer if he had been valued as a human being. In 1991, Joachim Kroll died of a heart attack in Rhinebeck Prison. He was 58 years old. Detective Bird Yeagers retired in 2013, making him the last investigator on the Kroll case in active service. Though undoubtedly the most memorable case of his 44-year career, Yeagers never allowed it to torment him. He said in an interview with Dervestin, I've always been good at leaving such burdensome stuff in the office after work. Otherwise, you cannot stand the homicide job for more than four decades. But for others, like the victims' families, it isn't that easy to erase the nightmares of their past. After Kroll's death, Marlies Voivod found little vindication for her father or for his other victims. After I heard about it, I felt hatred for Kroll and would have liked to wish on him that everything he did to the children and to the adults would be done to him. And I'm sorry that he died so early. And this anger I have will probably never go away. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Casey Georgie, Ben Hosley, Rachel Jacobs, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Mavriakis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi and Daniel Birch. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Recorded by Adam Garner at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Special thanks to Catherine Lorimer and the Goethe Institute and the New York Public Library. We'd like to thank the families of victims willing to share their story. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at RAINN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thanks. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. When they executed that search warrant, they went in the crawl space, and the very first shovel that they dug, they found human remains. 
Authorities discover 26 bodies buried in the trenches directly below Gacy's home. It's a mass grave. Three other bodies are found buried elsewhere on his property. Norwood Park Township, once a portrait of a safe suburban community, was shattered. At one point, chillingly, he says to the detectives, you know, clowns can get away with murder. Over the course of six years, John Wayne Gacy kidnapped, tortured, and brutally murdered 33 young men and boys in and around Chicago, Illinois. For kids, monsters are real. As you become an adult, you realize, well, there are no real werewolves, there are no real vampires. But then something like this happens and, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, this monster is real. 